Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. What can you expect in this episode? We dive back into the world of legends, this time about Saint Ursula of Cologne. Her story has shaped Cologne like no other personality to this day. Before we launch into this episode, a little side note. I had the pleasure of being a guest on the Wonders of the World podcast. In the interview with host Drew Varenkamp, we talked about the history of Cologne in the late Middle Ages, the plague, and of course the Cologne Cathedral. If you are interested in those topics, please have a listen and send my best regards to Drew. Link to his podcast episode in the show notes. As always, before we dive into our chronological narrative, presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne. The emblem of Cologne's largest professional football soccer league team, the Erster FC Köln, is a billy goat. The club, which was founded in 1948 by a merger of several clubs, was given a billy goat as a gag at a carnival show in 1950, two years after its foundation. The billy goat named Hennes was so popular that he became the official mascot of the club. Since then the club's emblem has also been adorned with a billy goat. Until today it is a tradition that a billy goat stands on the edge of the field during home games. This billy goat has his own escort to drive him from his own home in the Cologne Zoo to the stadium. As soon as the billy goat dies or retires, a new billy goat is appointed. This one must always be called Hennes, of course. Right now, Hennes IX has been in office since August 2019, and his predecessor, Hennes VIII, has been enjoying his retirement at Cologne Zoo ever since. By the way, you can watch Hennes live in his stable via a live stream, but at the time of this recording, the stream was not available online. Well, maybe just a technical defect. So much for that, hit the intro. In the last episode we have dealt with two personalities of the late 4th century from Cologne. The Bishop of Cologne, Severin, and the Frank Arbogast who was the military commander in Roman service on the Rhine. But there's one person from this time we have to dedicate ourselves to as well. It is Saint Ursula. Why did I not talk about her in the previous episode? Well, her story is much too big to be dealt with in passing. But first, a little disclaimer. The story of Saint Ursula is hard to fit into this largely chronological narrative of this podcast. Why is that? She lived in the 5th century, yes, well that may be true, but what she triggered and caused would only unfold over the next centuries and we have to talk about that as well. So I had a choice here. Either I leave Ursula out at this point in the narrative of our podcast and talk about her later, only to show her legacy's relevance in the High and Late Middle Ages. Or to tell her story now, this illustrious narrative about the life of Saint Ursula in this period of late antiquity, which had so few sources. You see, I have chosen the latter. I'll talk about her now, but with many references to later centuries. 
The story of St. Ursula falls into that period with few sources which is so typical of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, in which we find ourselves epochally with this podcast right now. Before we start, we must assume that we will find a legend here, a story that was constructed afterwards. But as is often so the case here, whether the story is true or not is irrelevant. The legacy of St. Ursula has left a lasting impression on Cologne and continues to do so today at virtually every corner. There is hardly any other person who has been so identity-forming as Ursula, whether real or not. After all this prelude, I hope you are still with me. Where do we start here? The best thing is to simply start with what has been handed down to us. This brings us to the legend about her. We don't have an exact date, and in the end it is not of crucial importance. The Roman central power in Gaul and Britain is decaying rapidly. It is now increasingly being replaced by the barbarian small kingdoms whose leaders had previously been responsible for border security and military defense on behalf of Rome. Also, in today's Brittany. Brittany lies in the northwestern corner of present-day France where King Notus rules, or was his name Dionotus, or even Marus? I have really found three different names for this king. But be that as it may, the name of the king is not important either for us. This king had a pretty and young daughter named Ursula, and she is known far beyond the borders. Her skin is snow white and her hair golden like the sun. Of course, the barbarian princes of the region courted the pretty daughter from Brittany. Many courted Ursula, but she always turned away her admirers. Also, the young prince Eterius, son of a barbarian king in Britain. The Romans had withdrawn from the island around the year 400, creating a big power vacuum that the barbarian tribes on the island filled. Eterius is a fine and nice man and Ursula liked him too, but he was a pagan and not a deeply believing Christian like herself. So Ursula said no to his proposal. The rejection made Eterius so angry that he convinced his royal father to threaten Ursula's father with war if he did not give his daughter's hand for Eterius. Fully aware of the military inferiority, the father finally backed his daughter Ursula to agree to the marriage. A dream gave her the inspiration to get out of the dilemma. Next morning she agrees to marry the king's son from Britain. But, and this is really a big but, she sets conditions before the wedding can be celebrated. First, her future husband, Eterius, must immediately convert to the Christian faith and be baptized. So far so good. But now it comes. The marriage should be waited three years. Until then, Ursula wants to go on a pilgrimage as a quasi-big but pious bachelor party. And lo and behold, Eterius agrees. For Ursula's bachelor party, which is planned for three years, she takes ten more virgins as friends with her. With eleven boats, they set sail. Each boat is led by a virgin. Later, the number of the virgins is increased from 11 to 11,000. Why is this? We will get to that. The 11 boats sail through the North Sea, go up the Rhine and already pass Cologne in this way. But the destination of these ladies is Basel in today's Switzerland, the last place where the Rhine is navigable. 
From there they travel overland to Rome and Italy. In the internal city they meet Pope Curiacus, who is so impressed by the piety of these ladies that he joins the traveling party without further ado and gives up his bishopric and his, you know, title of being Pope. Several bishops and other cardinals also join him. Well, okay, that's really a strange twist in the story, but that's how it is told. Now, this illustrious community of pilgrims is on its way home, the same way back as they had come. But in the Rhineland the situation has worsened considerably. The Huns invade the Rhineland and have now devastated almost everything in the region. The city of today's Mainz in the Roman province of Upper Germania had only just escaped destruction by the Huns. According to legend, the future husband Eterius had also joined Ursula there in Mainz, who could not stand it without her. Of course, they slept in separate cabins. They were not married yet. They traveled together further down the Rhine. But now these horse people from the Asian steppe, the Huns, besieged our beloved Cologne. Just like the Germanic tribes in former times, the Huns could not overcome the mighty city walls of Rome Cologne immediately. The Huns stayed in front of the city of Cologne and were starting to feel bored, of course, what you always do when you wait for something to happen. When the ships of Ursula and her companions passed by on the Rhine, they were a welcome sacrifice to the Huns to finally live out their own bloodlust after all the waiting. To the astonishment of the people of Cologne, Ursula even prepared to dock her ships at Cologne, that is, directly with the Huns who were besieging the city. The citizens of Cologne were horrified and shouted and waved at the group of ships not to dock here. The danger was really within reach. But why did Ursula do this? Why did she order the ships to dock at Cologne and thus sooner or later place herself in the hands of the marauding pagan Huns? It was again a dream that determined Ursula's actions. An angel had appeared to her the night before in a dream and had ordered her to act this way. The angel, of course, had made no fuss that Ursula and her companions would suffer their martyrdom in this way. But the pious Ursula trusted the angel's words. The Huns could hardly believe their eyes as the largely female and young travel group docked directly in front of them. Immediately they attacked the group and did unspeakable things to them. In the end, everyone was killed, also Ursula's future husband Terius. Only Ursula was almost the last to be spared at the request of the Hun commander. The leader of this Hun army was, of course, none other than the world-famous and infamous Attila. Attila was just as enthusiastic and enchanted by the beauty of Ursula. He offered to spare her completely, under the condition, of course, that she would become his wife. Well, one of his wives, because a pagan king like Attila naturally had many wives. You can imagine how Ursula reacted to Attila's wedding proposal. He had not only killed her future husband, but also her ten virgin companions. A former pope and several bishops and cardinals were among the victims as well. And she, a pious Christian noblewoman, was to marry a foreign and pagan barbarian? Never. The fact that a woman contradicted him, the great and powerful Attila, enraged the Hun commander so much that he immediately shot her with bow and arrow, without batting an eye. Immediately, Ursula collapsed dead in front of him, as did her companions before her. 
Only one of Ursula's friends, named Cordula, escaped the bloodbath at first. Cordula had not disembarked and had hidden in one of the ships. When she saw the, in her eyes, courageous and selfless martyrdom of her friends, she too decided to go to the hunts and let herself be killed. On that day, the entire Rhine is said to have turned red with blood. Well, you see, we are already very close to the Middle Ages. Attila should deeply regret his shameful action. The night after the massacre, he found only a restless sleep. Ursula appeared to him in a dream, armed and invincible. And she was not alone. Her companions were also armed and determined. Pretty soon the king of the Huns realized this was not only a dream. Ursula and her companions really descended from heaven and were accompanied by a flock of angels. Pagan or not, at this sight the Huns, including Attila, were scared the living daylight out of them. In great haste they flee and break off the siege of Cologne. The result? Cologne is saved, thanks to the martyrdom of Ursula and her virgin companions. A legend to the legend says the following about the events described here. The citizens of Cologne are so grateful to Ursula that they later bury her and her companions in front of the city. Close to the place of her last resting place, a rich Roman Cologne citizen with name Clematius built a church in Ursula's honor. The church St. Ursula. Before that, a church had probably already stood there, but it was destroyed during the plundering of Cologne by the Franks in 355. This is the legend about St. Ursula of Cologne, the Breton king's daughter who died before Cologne, but in this way saved Cologne from the pagan hunts. That this is a legend, that should be clear to everyone. Really nobody doubts it nowadays. I'm sure you've noticed that too, because some details in this story don't fit together. A short overview. Many versions of this legend talk about 11,000 virgins who went on the journey. So sorry, that's absolutely impossible to match this and a completely exaggerated number. Probably a transmission error when copying their story is to blame for this. So 11 virgins immediately became 11,000 virgins. To a thesis why the number was increased from 11 to 11,000, well, I will come to that in a moment. Or this pope in this story too, who was called Curiacus, he never existed. Although the exact chronology of who exactly when was the respective pope will be probably an eternal task for the historians in the Vatican archives, this one must have been really freely invented. I also have a theory about the fact that the Pope and even other male persons like bishops joined Ursula's travel group, which I will explain also later. That Attila the Hun really was in the Rhineland, well, that is quite possible, but according to today's sources, he did not lay siege to Cologne, but in the 450s, he had certainly been in the region and had frightened the people of Cologne. What significance does St. Ursula have for Cologne? Well, quite a lot. Have you ever looked at the logo of my podcast? It shows the coat of arms of the city of Cologne. It shows two eagles having a own coat of arms shield in their middle. This coat of arms has been used for at least 700 years, so since the late Middle Ages in the 15th century. The two stately eagles illustrate Cologne's status as a free, mighty, imperial city in the Holy Roman Empire. But we will get to that the 15th century <laughs> in a few several hundred thousand episodes, I guess. 
What we should be much more interested in is the coat of arms in the middle. It shows three crowns. Look closely on it on your device where you listen to this podcast. What they stand for? Well, I will also tell you later in this podcast when we get to it in the 12th century. We don't want to spoil anything here. Among these golden three crowns on the red background there are 11, well, um, 11 what? Some people call them flames, some call them drops, and some call them tears. Nevertheless, these 11 tears stand for Saint Ursula and her virgin companions. Since she once saved Cologne from great danger, she had become a patron saint of the city, and to honor her, this was put into the coat of arms of Cologne. To be more precisely, it is also clearly visible that these 11 tears are actually representing ermine tails, and these are also found in the coat of arms of Brittany, the home of Saint Ursula. By the way, up until today, you can look that up. But whoever listened carefully now will notice there are a good thousand years between the first documentary mention of Cologne's coat of arms in the 15th century and the 5th century in which Ursula lived. The creation of legend about Saint Ursula has gone through several stages over the centuries, and we can reconstruct the development of the veneration of Saint Ursula in a rough way. From the 8th century onwards, the legend of Ursula spreads all over Europe and is becoming more and more elaborate. In certificates, in forms, in literature and even in calendars, her history is mentioned more and more often. From the 9th and 10th century onwards, Ursula then received her name the first time. Yes, you have heard correctly. Before that she was a nameless Breton noblewoman who had found martyrdom with her companions before Cologne. The name Ursula was not chosen by accident. In, in Latin, the name is the diminutive form of she-bear, certainly as a reference to the fact that Ursula had bravely defied the Huns like a bear and accepted her martyrdom. In the year 1106, the worship of Ursula really takes off. Cologne is expanded once again in this year. During construction work for the new city fortifications near the church of St. Ursula, a Roman cemetery is discovered, which of course should not surprise any of my listeners of my podcast. The Romans had always buried their dead outside the city. When the city grew beyond the old Roman city limits in the Middle Ages, it is clear that you would come across these graves. Mistakenly, the bones found are believed to be the remains of Ursula and her companions. So close to the church where Saint Ursula found her martyrdom? That can't be a coincidence, the people thought back then. For the people of Cologne, this find of all the bones of their ancient but already long dead fellow citizens came in very handy. The belief in the divine efficacy of relics, for example objects or even better the mortal remains of Christian saints was at its height in the Christian West at that time. And so they dug up the bones step by step. One may hardly believe it. Cologne thus became the second largest trading center for these relics, and with it also the worship of relics in entire Christian Europe was promoted by like hardly any other city. Italy, Spain and Portugal are places where the veneration of Ursula is very popular. If that were not enough, she is the patron saint of the cloth merchants, and for the people of Tyrol, she is even responsible for the weather. 
But it didn't stop there. The congregation of the Ursulines was founded in 1535 in Brescia in northern Italy, only accepting women as their members. They promoted the upbringing and education of girls all over the world, at that time something truly extraordinary. The Ursulines founded their first monastery and a school for girls in Cologne in 1639 and ran it for over 350 years until 1988. The school exists still today, only now under the auspices of the Archbishopric of Cologne, but still being a Catholic school. Since 2012, also boys are allowed to go to one of the two branches of the secondary school, but still, both genders are taught separately, which is in modern-day Germany anomaly. Okay, but back to these bones, the people of Cologne start to sell in the High Middle Ages around the 12th century. Some voices of distrust were of course already present at that time. Many of the bones found clearly belonged to men. To recognize this, you did not have to be a forensic scientist. But it had only been women who went on the journey of Ursula, so how could there be so many male skeletons? Fiddlesticks, said the followers of the worship of Ursula. There were plenty of bishops, including Pope Kyriakos, who traveled with her. Okay then, but weren't there only 11 virgins? Nonsense, there were 11,000 virgins. That's why there are so many bones in the ground. Look, all the bones didn't come here by chance and right next to the church of St. Ursula. And so, the lively trade with relics in Cologne continued for quite a while. The trade in relics was one of the many sources of wealth and prosperity for the city of Cologne in the Middle Ages. Because not only people who dug up these bones earned money from the business. Goldsmiths, jewelers, artists, carpenters, weavers, tailors, boxmakers, they all made sure that every relic looked like something really fanciful artifact that every good Christian wanted to have. Bones were decorated with gold, gems and in cloths, or even framed in precious shrines and vessels. I'm posting some pictures of such relics on my page thehistoryofcologne.wordpress.com. In the course of this podcast, I think we will talk about the medieval relic trade in Cologne in more detail than here. Actually, quite unashamed one might think, with the bones of the inhabitants of Cologne from Roman times, the people of Cologne the Middle Ages earned themselves a golden nose. Surely there was a real lack of knowledge and also a strong belief in the legend, but Certainly also a strong sense of business. The church St. Ursula also became a coveted pilgrimage destination for pilgrims during this time and thus one of the richest churches in Europe. In the choir room of the church you can still see the shrine of Ursula today. But wait a minute, how did people know which of the 11,000 buried people in the earth was actually that of St. Ursula? Now there is also a legend about this. It takes us back into the past, into the 7th century, a good 200 years after Ursula's martyrdom. The Bishop of Cologne, Cunibert, who is also a very important bishop, by the way, and whom we will talk about in more detail later, wandered over the cemetery one day with the aim of finding the remains of St. Ursula. For his project, he first celebrated a service in a nearby church of St. Ursula, which was consecrated to the very woman he now wanted to bury here with honor. So while Cunibert held his service, a dove flew on his head. Unlike most doves, this event did not end with the good bishop having to wash his head afterwards. Instead, 
the dove showed the bishop the way to the exact place of Ursula's last rest. Hey, do not ask me how the dove did that. I was not there when it happened. But Bishop Cunibert found what he was looking for. Since then, Ursula's bones have been laid out in the shrine of their own in the choir room of the church. And what happened to the remaining bones? In other words, with those that had not been sold by the people of Cologne to good believing Christians all over the world, like thousands of others? Well, these hundred and thousands of bone pieces and several skulls are laid out in the golden chamber in the church of St. Ursula, stacked up to the ceiling. A spectacular sight. As the church of my high school, of course, I saw this room in St. Ursula several times as a student, and I have to admit that it and I have to admit that I still feel queasy about it. Bones or not, they all once belonged to thousands upon thousands of actual people, and now they are all lined up like a wallpaper in there. I don't go there very often these days, but maybe I will manage to take a picture of it. You can see this and more information at the historyofcologne.wordpress.com, link in the show notes. The Church of St. Ursula's also breathtaking is also one of the oldest churches in the world, still in use today. Well, that was this episode about St. Ursula and what she did for Cologne, or rather her legend about her life. I know I've reached far into other centuries, we are not even close it, and left the mostly chronological path of this podcast being still in late antiquity, but there was no other way to talk about the legend of Ursula. She influenced the identity of the city like no other person. Cologne as a holy city, consecrated by the blood of 11,000 virgins who suffered their martyrdom outside the city. Some may find it strange today that the city was proud of that, but for many centuries this has attracted great attention far beyond the borders of Cologne. To die for your faith? That was the greatest thing for the Christian West in the Middle Ages. And of course, just like Agrippina, Agrippa, Posthumus, Constantine, and other great personalities of Cologne city history, St. Ursula has her own statue on the present-day tower of the Cologne City Hall. I'd like to post a photo of that too, which I could then put on the homepage, but the whole narrow area in that part of the old town is currently closed off by a construction site for the Jewish museum that is currently under construction, and that prohibits us to visit the Praetorium or other parts of archaeological Roman sites in Cologne. Well, then a Wikipedia picture will have to be used if necessary. As I said, this was a story about Saint Ursula, who suffered her martyrdom at the hands of the Huns outside of Cologne. But the historical setting of her legend is no lie. The invasion of the Huns in the late 4th and early 5th century in Europe reveals the weakness of the decaying Roman Empire. So be there for the next episode as well, when the Roman era in Cologne slowly but steadily draws to a close, for good. But this end need not to be seen so dramatically. Epochs do not simply end so abruptly. Rather, a slow transition takes place. Only in retrospect are some events clearly connected. That is the same in Cologne and the end of Roman rule here. For the end of Roman Cologne is seamless and quiet, I mean, quite peaceful. We will also devote ourselves to this, probably not in the next, but the one after it episode, when we will look back and draw a conclusion on Roman Cologne and dare to venture a look at early medieval Cologne. Okay, I've already 
teased two episodes now. So next week we will first look at how the power of Rome on the Rhine completely disappears in just a few decades in the 5th century after so many centuries of domination and imperial rule. But the way there is exciting and twisty. So be there if, then among other things, in the year 451, nearly the entire late antique world in only one battle in Gaul, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains, will play a kind of deadly farewell concert of the antique as a whole. Thus, marking the start of the Middle Ages in Europe, the band will be made up of all those who have rank and name. Huns, Romans, Franks, Alemanni, Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Saxons, Alans, Burgundians, Thuringians and so on and so on. But stop now. Thanks as always. Recommend my podcast to others and auf Wiedersehen. But wait, at the end I would still briefly get rid of something personal. Actually I want to avoid temporal references here, but anyway, this is me in January 2021 feeling absolutely grateful. A year ago I started this podcast as my personal hobby besides work. I just, like you, could not know what the coming year of 2020 would be like. Your feedback, which I receive in many different ways now and then, is so motivating. You have to think of podcasting as shouting into a great wide valley. You know someone hears you, but you can't see the people down in the valley. So, your feedback makes me happy every time. And I myself am always happy when listeners tell me their own connection with Cologne. Whether it's because they once lived here or spent a vacation here. Thanks also to my Patreons. Fortunately, podcasting doesn't cost a fortune, but it does add up to a three-digit sum per year. I don't want to complain, of course, I was aware of the monetary effort, but thank you very much for helping me with your contribution to the creation of these episodes. Finally, of course, I thank all listeners. You have given me something that I cannot pay you in return. Your time and attention. Have a good time and auf Wiedersehen.